Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. I'm Matt Carpenter, and I am grateful today to welcome Joy Clarkson here. She is uh, a writer. She is a holds a PhD from St. Andrews in Scotland, and you probably know her from many of our listeners have read many of her mom's books, Sally Clarkson, but also she has written a book called Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. And also, she said that she is just about to take a job as a research associate at King's College in London. So, Joy, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Matt. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes. Let's start with the title. So, how did you come up with the title, Aggressively Happy? And does that naturally correlate to your personality or because I know for some people when they hear that they could they, they think this doesn't apply to me because that's not who I am so mm-hmm. so how, how what is the origin of the title well the title itself um, you know comes not to bring peace but a sword uh, it's been kind of a, a divisive one but it's it's said partially um, both in jest, but also in defiance. It was something that somebody called me um, on the internet. I don't know how much time you spend on social media, but I spent more than my fair share of time on Twitter during my PhD because I love St. Andrews, but it's this little teeny tiny fishing village. um, And, you know, when all you have to do is write your PhD and, um, and then not go on a walk because it's so cold windy, you end up finding other ways to spend your time. And I actually found a fair amount of interesting people on the internet that I connected with who were interested in similar things. And, um, and I tried to kind of stay away from posting negative or controversial things for the most part, just because I felt like there's so much of that, that I wanted to bond with people over what I cared about, what I was passionate about, um, which you would think would be an inoffensive, um, tack to take in the internet. But the thing is, there is no such thing as inoffensive tax on the internet. No matter what you do, you'll find someone who doesn't like you. And right. so one day I had tweeted about something really innocuous. Um, I think it was tea or something uh, that I liked tea or that I was excited about having tea. And someone responded and said, this is disgusting. You're so aggressively happy. Um, and, you know, I, they, they were meant it slightly in jest, but I thought it was funny and I laughed. Um, But it also struck me as something that's kind of indicative, I think, of our culture and particularly of online, which is just this kind of suspicion of happiness, of of innocence, of joy, and this assumption that if someone is happy, it's either because they're ignorant, so just not aware of what's happening in the world, um, or they don't care about other people, right? There's kind of either ignorance or callousness. And... I think that um, really where the book came out of for me was a sense that I think some of the most joyful people I know are people who've also suffered a lot in life and have have really gone through difficult things. 
Um, and that joy is actually the fruit of a great spiritual maturity, I think, often, especially in the face of the world that we live in today. And I think also I, I believe, um, contra the internet, it, that at the core of reality, you know, it talks about a realist guide. And I really mean that, um, that at the core of reality is not brokenness and loss, but but God and his goodness and his faithfulness. And that means that um, that finding joy, creating joy, being a joyful person isn't just an ignoring or, a, or a pushing away of the pain of the world, but it's actually a testimony to what really is at the core. This morning, I, you know, I have my little podcast I listen to every morning of Bible readings. And this morning was Hebrews where it talks about, for we have this hope, which is an anchor, a sure anchor of our souls. And so that is something that I really care about and believe about. And I think that without that sense of the hope that anchors us or joy being at the heart of reality. Um, I don't know. I think it's hard to, to love, to live well, to, to actually fight for things that matter and to fight to preserve things that matter um, because we'll just be kind of um, crippled by cynicism. So all that to say, I thought that the comment was funny um, about being aggressively happy. And I also thought, I think on some level, I both, I want to be that way. Um, you know, I talk in the book and we'll probably get more into this about how dispositionally, I mean, I'm named joy, right? So that I always get, um, you know, questions about, are you naturally happy person? And I do think that I am, you know, fairly, uh, I think I have a, a proclivity to enjoy life. That's my disposition. Um, but I also have a fairly strong melancholic streak. And so, you know, my name itself means joy, but Marie means bitterness. So I've always thought there's kind of joy and sorrow in me. And so for me, titling it Aggressively Happy was A, to indicate the fact that it is a playful and funny book. Um, but B, that there is this, I think, necessity in our world uh, that you kind of have to be aggressive. <laughs> you kind of have to be assertive and powerful in your, in your, in your declaration that at the heart of reality is this sure hope, the sure anchor of hope. Um, so I laughed and I thanked the person that called me aggressively happy and I put it on my Twitter profile. And then two years later, I wrote a book about it. Excellent. <laughs> I was reminded in, in reading the title of, of Jesus when he's talking about John the Baptist in uh, Matthew 11, he says one of those verses that, that people look askance at that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Mm. So there is a degree of, 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 of aggression we <laughs> must take in pursuing what is good mm. and, 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 and beginning with the virtues, mm. the virtues of faith, hope, love, and mm joy and so yes your the place where you talk about your name mm. was really it was a strong part of the book there are many strong parts in the book but you, you did a good job and i appreciated how you you placed your your first name which mm. is of course joy within that you know your second name, Marie, which refers to bitterness, you know, going back to the word myrrh and, and even also that, that made me think of, of Mary mm. and, 
she was talking with, uh, or, or Simeon mm-hmm. said her that a sword would pierce her heart mm-hmm. also. So, so one who carried the Savior, which certainly, I mean, with all the, the tumult that, that surrounded that her initial situation, that there, there was undoubtedly joy mm-hmm. there, but mm-hmm. there was also piercing. So it, it's never, we, we, we can never have absolute, perfect, uncluttered mm-hmm. happiness unless mm-hmm. we pursue it. And that's what you talk about in mm-hmm. the book. Yeah. Well, and just to add something to that, I think, um, you know, I think a part of what makes us able to experience deep joy is real, that there's real value in things, right? That for Mary to be able to, to hold, to have Christ in her womb, to get to watch him, that's such a deep joy, um, a real value that to also watch him, you know, be crucified, to, to die, to be, to be condemned for sins that were not his own. Um, the degree of sorrow matches the degree of, of joy, you know? And I think that that's something that has helped me is I think sometimes people think you have to be, if you're going to be joyful, that you have to ignore sorrow. But I had a mentor once tell me when I was going through a particularly difficult time that your capacity to rejoice actually expands with sorrow, that they're related to each other. And I think that's because both joy and sorrow recognize the value of good things. You know, to rejoice is to recognize the value of, of a person, of an experience and to grieve is to recognize the value of that thing when it is lost, but they're not opposed to each other. They are related to each other. And I think what, uh, and I think it's an important part of learning to rejoice is learning to be open-hearted and, and uh, to give thanks for the, the real things the values we experience in life, but also know that that means we're also open to experiencing sorrow. Those things kind of sit next to each other and aren't in opposition. Right. One one guy that I talked to once said, in referring to something else, but it applies here, he, he uh, called it a duality mm. versus dualism. Mm. So something that is in duality, they may seem, it may seem like there's tension mm. there, but they actually work together. Yeah. yeah. So in, the, in your introduction, you, you grabbed me and my wife both. Uh, because actually, originally, this was a birthday gift for her. And mm-hmm. so we we read it, and, and and it was, of course, we thoroughly enjoyed it. But you you talked about the, your Scotch-Irish side that is naturally gloomy. So, so that's both, that is in our heritage, both mm-hmm. mine and hers. Mm-hmm. So... For some people, then, happiness will not look the same mm-hmm. as it manifests itself. That, 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 it's, that's what I was taking mm-hmm. from, um, from what you said there. So, you know, how does happiness show itself in different, in, in, through different personalities? Mm, different dispositions. Um, one of the ways I like to think about this is I like to think about it according to weather which I talked about a little bit in the book, but I think I've more fully developed my theory on this um, since writing the book. Um, 
you know, uh, I wasn't kidding about the Scotch-Irish ancestry. It's interesting when you look at the um, statistics of, you know, of people with depression and OCD specifically, both of those. Um, it's like the incidence is like 70% higher, I think, in Scotch-Irish, something like that, than, the than you know, like other populations. And so I do think, you know, when I, when I look at my family tree, there are a lot of wonderful, beloved of God people who just, just by existing in the world, even when nothing was happening to them, just struggled to, to be okay. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. I think that's a lot of us have that in, in our histories. Um, but I like to think of it for myself, um, like weather. I've always kind of, when you think about it, a lot of times we associate uh, emotions with weather, right? So you, mm -hmm. you have... Um, storminess might be someone who's a little bit angry or, you know, we think about rain is sorrow. We think about sun is happiness. It's, you know, a lot of the metaphors we use. And I think about the difference between living in um, Scotland and where I did my PhD and living in Southern California where I did my undergrad. <laughs> and I think about how um, you just kind of comported yourself in a different way based on what you knew the weather, what weather you could expect. And I think that my interior landscape is a little bit more like Scotland, which means that there are maybe a few less sunny days, just 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 by nature, right. uh, and a few more rainy days. It means that I have to you have to prepare for the rainy days in Scotland in a way that you really don't in California. However, California does have the weird thing of like when there are rainy days, it's extra dangerous because no one knows how to cope with driving. Um, right. And so for me, I think that means thinking about not thinking kind of in a neutral way about yourself and saying, maybe, you know, like me, you are prone to be a little more stormy. You're prone to have a few more dark days than you are to have sunny days. That doesn't mean that you can't be happy. It also doesn't mean that like in Scotland, when you get to the summer, it is so beautiful, partially because it was so rainy and gray for all those, those morning months. And so knowing that they're actually maybe gifts of your of your disposition, even when it feels like sometimes it's a burden. So I think thinking about just kind of accepting with an openness, with a lack of judgment, whatever your personality is, whatever your disposition is from your family, thinking, what do I need to, you know, in Scottish houses, you have to prepare to be warm when it's cold. So thinking about when I have a, a depressive day, what do I need to be to be safe, to prepare for that. How would you prepare a Scottish house in a way that you wouldn't prepare a, a California one? But then also think about what are the gifts of my my interior climate um, and being thankful that. Does that make sense? That's kind of a weird I mean, way of thinking. No, 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 not, it's not weird at all. There are, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. I enjoy, just <laughs> thoroughly enjoy studying different cultures, mm. different, people groups and, and and even the people groups who migrated to America, you can mm -hmm. you can see mm -hmm. based on and this is from David Hackett Fisher mm -hmm. has a, a book called Albion Seed, mm -hmm. where he traces four different people groups from the British Isles and the culture that between 15 and 20 different cultural elements that was there when they were in mm -hmm. British Isles and how those cultural elements were brought to the colonies where mm. they settled. Mm. But it does a really good job in describing 
those different cultures and how they implanted in the in our country. So mm-hmm. that does, I mean, it, it makes sense with the weather because I know for myself, mm-hmm. if I have a lot of sunny days in a row, mm-hmm. especially, I mean, I, the summer is great, but it's mm-hmm. also my least favorite month. Mm-hmm. Now I say this with, I don't say it with embarrassment. C.S. Lewis said the same thing. Mm, yeah. He disliked the summer more than any other month. He preferred fall and or the, the autumn and the winter. I mean, he's he's a good Northern Ireland. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that, that that's just the way he is. So mm-hmm. I, I am to- following you. I, I don't want to spend too much more time on that, but because I feel like I easily could. So yes, that makes a lot of sense. Wherever we are. Whatever our disposition is, God has given us the call to pursue a joyful heart. Mm-hmm. So that may look different for different people. Mm-hmm. And yes, your talk about preparation is necessary. And the, the preparation would, it has to do with those different, your different chapter titles. Mm-hmm. So you have multiple chapter titles, all of which have a, a particular verb. Mm. They begin with verbs. And your first one, in in an interesting statement that could sound like an oxymoron for the Mm. book, Aggressively Happy, is Mm. befriend sadness. So why Mm. would someone pursuing happiness befriend sadness? Well, I think we've already touched on this a tiny bit, but I think that um, I don't think... Um, the emotional life is one where you can be like, I'm going to be, I'm going to experience happiness and uh, contentedness, but not anger or sadness. These are all kind of, these are all just parts of how we respond to the world. And I think that if you are choosing to really deaden one or, or stuff down as much as you can, one emotion over another, um, you're also going to increasingly kind of it seems to me, at least in my experience, that you increasingly kind of um, become numb in those other ways. Now, I don't mean that you can't, I do think there's an element to like what you feed grows, right? So if you feed thankfulness, if you feed um, peace, those, those things do, they, they grow in your life. So I'm not talking about fixating on sadness or fixating on anger, but I do think that there's an element of needing to be willing to experience the full range of emotions Um if you really want to be happy. And I think that also boils down to the sense that there are things in the world worth being sad about the things in the world worth being angry about. You know, um, I love reading, especially the prophets because in the old Testament, cause they're just so full of deeply emotional language. And a part of that is the sense that part of being appropriately formed is that you do feel angry at injustice. You do feel grieved over loss And so that chapter I felt like was really important to start with because I think that we have to be willing to experience the full range of human emotion if we want to experience happiness, because otherwise we're kind of shedding ourselves off from a lot of what life is and also shedding ourselves off of the actual value of things. So if it's about a realist sense of there's really goodness in life and it's really worth rejoicing over, that also means that it's really sad when we lose it. It's really infuriating when it's not treated correctly. So I wanted to kind of start off with that openness to experiencing um, the full breadth of emotions and bringing them to God and to ourselves. We see, and you talk about this in the life of Jesus, that he was, in Isaiah's words, acquainted 
with mm-hmm. grief. Mm-hmm. And we don't normally think of Jesus and just at least the way that I was raised in in an evangelical culture, mm. we, we don't hear about the emotions mm. of Jesus. Mm. And, and there's not a lot written about that. That's not the emphasis of the Gospels. But to deny that he was affected by mm. emotions, yet without sin, but still mm-hmm. affected, would be heretical. Mm-hmm. Because that that would mean he would he was not actually touched mm-hmm. with the things that we face. So, I mean, he lost John the Baptist, his mm-hmm. cousin, mm-hmm. who he certainly uh, would have known, and Joseph was not around when mm-hmm. he was crucified. So, you know, very likely he had already died, and so, so those the ins and outs of everyday life. Well, and. And we see, you know, it tells us there, there is the famous verse, famously the shortest verse, Jesus wept. Um, but you also see him become angry. You know, the, you, he calls the Pharisees, you brood of vipers because he's angry at the truth, not being, you know, putting he's angry yes. at the burdens. So we see the, the, I don't think the gospels always tell us Jesus is mad here, but like, but it's conveyed in in the story that we're given and he is, he is the fullness of human nature and experiences those things without sin. Um, which means that emotions don't have to, don't have to be sinful. Right. Exactly. If they are not, we're we're called to, to channel them Mm. in the right way. Mm -hmm. So, and that was, you know, one thing just by, by way of, of admission, when I read, when I began your book, I was not skeptical. Mm. I was curious as someone, which, you know, by people can't see you, but, but, you know, they know that you're not in your sixties by any stretch. <laughs> so, you know, you're in I'm your twenties, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, so my thought as a pastor, because I faced this when I was a young pastor, I mean, I had members say, you have no idea mm. what I'm going through because you've not lived long enough or something mm. like that. Mm. So I was, I, I was curious, how is she going to handle this? And honestly, I was very appreciative mm. of the way you walk with your readers mm. through things that I mean that shows experience in life or maybe not experience but just it shows wisdom mm. that goes well beyond your actual time thus far on this earth and and that that's really helpful for people because I, I can imagine potentially a 50 year old would say why would I read a, want to read a book called aggressively happy <laughs> but you rely on scripture and on the the experience of a lot of other people who mm-hmm. have faced these type of things so when, when it comes to befriending or embracing sadness, 
that's something all of us will experience. So, you know, you talk about the call to, to be like Jesus mm-hmm. and, and, you know, to face it. Mm-hmm. Your next chapter is called Flounder Well. Mm-hmm. Or it, it, I think it's the next chapter. That's right, yeah. One <laughs> early. And you begin with one of the best opening lines in all of literature about someone who is floundering, mm-hmm. which is Dante, mm-hmm. that he's lost in a dark wood. Mm-hmm. And what is, well, the experience of floundering is one that many of us experience at one time or another. Why do we find it so hard, so such a fearful thing to flounder? Mm-hmm. That was a fun chapter to write. And when you talk about experience, I feel like I am young and I don't have that much experience of life, but I do feel like I've got a fair amount of experience with floundering. Um, so, you know, the uh, when I looked up the definition of floundering, I don't remember off the top of my head, but Merriam-Webster describes it as something kind of like ineffectual movement that you're, it's, it's when you think about like swimming and you're making a lot of effort and energy, but you're not sure which way you're going. And I think all of us find ourselves in seasons where, it's just not clear what, where it is we're going or why we're doing the things we're doing or what's next, or there may be things that we want, like a job or a spouse or a child or the child to be finally out of diapers or, you know, and it just feels like those things are kind of like unachievable um, and out of our grasp. And I think we find it, like when you think about the metaphor of swimming, I think we find it um, scary because we think, it's kind of almost a matter of survival. We think, what if I don't make it to a job, marriage, children, um, purpose, you know? And, and so there's a sense of what if I'm spending all this effort and I don't end up anywhere that means anything. And I, I don't know who I am. And, you know, it's, I think it's kind of that feeling of I should be somewhere that I'm not, and I don't know how to get there. Um, and so that's, that's, I think what it is. And I think, um, and I think it's because we're all made for relationships. We're all made for uh, purpose and meaning. And so we find those seasons of floundering. Um, you know, we, we, we need a, a garden wherein we can till the earth and someone to do it with. And so we feel quite anxious, I think, when, we, when it isn't clear what that, what that is. I think that's why we find it anxiety. But as I talked about in the book, I think, um, I think there are, just as there was for Dante, there could be a lot of fruit from those seasons and um, that it's a matter not of, and much similarly to, to sorrowing, it's a matter not of not floundering, but of learning how to flounder well. Yes. It, it's hard to imagine great people in history ever floundering. Mm. And and it, it, we have a significant certainly here in the States, Mm. a cult of efficiency Mm. that unless you are spending all of your time Mm. that where you can show at the end of the day, a list of accomplishments. Mm -hmm. I spent so much time doing this and so much time doing that. We value busyness Mm -hmm. and we can, we are, we would, if it was us, we would easily also criticize Mary 
Mm. Mm -hmm. for, quote, wasting her time Mm -hmm. by sitting at Jesus' feet. Mm. Now, of course, good Christians wouldn't do that. We wouldn't criticize Mary, but we will criticize someone who is not accomplishing as much as we would like. And certainly there's the other ditch Mm. of people, you know, all kinds of people talk about research, talks about the people who still are not, uh, you know, younger generations who by and large don't have the same aspirations Mm. as others, but that's not what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I, I appreciate you're addressing that cult of, efficiency. Mm. One quote that really stuck out in that chapter, you said, we waste precious energy grasping for some for something only ra- relaxation, lack of movement, and trust can achieve. Now, you're talking about someone who's who falls into the ocean, mm. but it applies, and mm. you apply it to our normal lives. So we, that fear is a very powerful mm. force that we have to be aware of and not give into. Yeah. Well, and that was, that was partially, like you said, that was a metaphor drawn from um, Marines say that you're actually more likely to drown if you flail than if you just stop moving. And um, I think that in my life, when you're in that period of not knowing where you're going to go, who you're going to marry, what you're going to do. It's the temptation is just to reach in every direction and, and do as much as you can. When actually a lot of times what you need is to be quiet and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and and that guidance comes from kind of that willingness to sit and be faithful with this moment, with the life I already have, with the people that are in it, and that that faithfulness to this moment can lead us to whatever is next. There's an entire book, um, Robert Cardinal Sarah. Uh, the, the Roman Catholic Cardinal, his book, The Power of Silence and the mm-hmm. Dictatorship of Noise, mm-hmm. speaks to that. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a very, it, it's a good book that talks about just the, the need for silence, which is, again, something that doesn't exactly go along with, with floundering. But mm-hmm. for many, we think of, if, why would you spend time in silence mm. what and he's not just saying sit down and be quiet and mm-hmm. don't do everything every mm-hmm. night but it, it's it's purposeful silence mm-hmm. it's the the habit that, mm-hmm. that we, we're called to pursue in the towards the direction of growing mm-hmm. in grace mm-hmm. so another chapter you, you speak of the, the necessity of remembering we have a body. <laughs> so what does it mean to remember we have a body? Well, um, I think the idea I had for that uh, title came from watching the movie Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce. And, mm-hmm. you know, after he became Christian, he was like so excited and passionate about his faith and what he wanted to do. And there's this great scene where one of his uh, but he has like these continual health breakdowns and, um, and one of his, one of his employees is like, I think he, he's so attentive to his soul that he's forgotten he has a body. And um, I think in my own life, and I write about this, hopefully self-deprecatingly, um, 
I think forgetting I have a body is easy to identify. It's when I don't eat, don't sleep, don't drink, don't exercise. I do all these things that um, I'm kind of acting as though I'm just a mind or I'm just a spirit. You know, I'm just going through life and thinking that I can just kind of mind over matter, uh, do everything that I need to do. And, and a lot of times this has to do with the cult of productivity, right? Because it's kind of the sense of um, any time spent resting, eating, whatever is, is wasteful and self-centered. But um, the point I wanted to make in the chapter is that in a weird way, I think remembering you have a body is an important part. It's an important part of remembering that you are not God and trusting God because God made us so that we have to eat like every day, numerous times a day. Yes. Um, that if we don't sleep, we will, we will hallucinate and die. If we, you know, there's a sense that we are dependent, that we have needs. And that is a reminder to us that I cannot, I, I'm not a superhuman. I can't fix everything. I can't do everything on my own. And I think that's actually really good for us because it keeps us from, it reminds us that both two things. One is that we're not God, but also that God loves us and cares for us and wants to take care of us. So I think on a practical level, I have been shocked in my life how often my unhappiness has more to do with the fact that I did not eat, did not sleep than some profound existential, you know, I'll be sitting there thinking, is there really a God? And then I'll eat breakfast and it will be evident that we're still still a God, you know? And so I think that on a practical level, if you want to increase your happiness, you need to eat reasonable meals, drink enough water and um, get outside every day. So it's, it's a, it's a theological point, but it's also just a practical point. If you want to be happier, remember you have body and take care of it. You began that chapter with a quote from Thomas Aquinas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people think of Aquinas as only a, a scholastic, mm-hmm. brilliant mind. Mm-hmm. Because at least in our circles, you know, ours being a, a pastor, a reformed church, mm-hmm. and I, I've heard one man say that a lot of reformed guys think that you know, God gave us a body simply to carry around our brains. <laughs> and we we do value that part. But Aquinas, his advice that he gives to, to someone who is sad mm-hmm. is so warm. Mm-hmm. It, and it, and it, a lot of it has to do, it's, I mean, it's very practical. It has to do with the types of things that you say. You know, you, mm-hmm. you mentioned... That, that he talks about having a bath. Mm-hmm. We think, what on earth would someone, th- this great medieval mind, why would he <laughs> tell people to have a bath? But but that's it. It can be helpful. It's always been helpful. And, and he, uh, another piece of advice, and I, I don't remember if you said this or not, but he says, do something you enjoy. Mm-hmm. That's one of his tips. Do something you enjoy. So, I have to interject and say, I really enjoy this section, the the bit that that comes from. It comes from a section in the Summa Theologia where, you know, the whole kind of form of the Summa is you have these kind of um, big questions and then you have these like little articles. And um, that one is on, I think the overall thing is how sorrow might be assuaged. That's like the overall title. And then he has a question, um, can... Um, 
Can friendship assuage sorrow? Can crying assuage sorrow? Um, can physical, like physical pleasures, like taking a bath, eating, or sleep, assuage sorrow? And then can contemplating the truth assuage sorrow? And if you ever need kind of to just feel like you've gotten a lovely little, a nice encouraging note from a medieval theologian, go read the section on what can assuage sorrow, because he just goes through and he says, yes, you know, crying can assuage sorrow because you know sorrow is all the more impounded if you don't release it so crying can assuage sorrow and good fellowship can assuage sorrow and and then he said the thing about um people always quote it as wine a bath and um sleep but i think it actually only says a bath and sleep in the and and eating in the text itself but it's just a really i I find it quite humorous and warm is a really good word for it i I appreciate that it had been so long since i read that that i'd forgotten (laughs) so so you did say that 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 was that that was the bath part, the bath and eating part. So yes, it's, but it's good advice. It is. And, and that, that, that's part of the, the gift of having other people around mm-hmm. is, I mean, people that you love, that you can spend time with and you can eat with all of those things should be wrapped up together in our, in, in our families. Mm-hmm. So then you have a chapter that that's called enjoy things unironically. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what you mean by that, because I had a certain idea going into the chapter and you took care of that. You, you, you explained that, but then you also expanded even further than I was anticipating. So how do we enjoy things unironically? So that also came from kind of some of my experiences on the internet, but I think this is also just true generally. I think we have kind of this, we don't want to seem silly. We don't want to seem too earnest, too overwrought. We don't want to be taken advantage of. So a lot of people, um, I think they kind of prevent themselves from enjoying things fully, whether that is a book series or a, or a hobby because they're afraid of what other people will think of them um, because they don't want to be taken advantage of or, you know, for all these different things. So that, in that, um, in that, in that chapter, I just wanted to, I actually think there's pretty deep reasons for why we're, why we get embarrassed, why we're afraid of liking things or telling people that we like things. And so in that chapter, I kind of wanted to get into why being able to enjoy something I think actually is a really good kind of spiritual practice and it frees you from the fear of what others will think of you in a healthy way, not an unhealthy way, but, you know, in the sense of you shouldn't be so afraid of seeming silly that you don't confess that you really do enjoy the Chronicles of Narnia. You know what I mean? It's something like that. Um, so the fear of others think of us. Um, now I'm forgetting kind of a fear that uh, nothing is really good. Uh, I think those are all pretty crippling fears that if you don't overcome them or think about them or confront them, you'll find it hard to make friendships, invest in good things. And so that was what that chapter was kind of about. And it was it was responding in my mind to an imagined critic on Twitter who just feels cynical about everything and can't let anyone enjoy anything. Right. <laughs> we, we often develop a more hardened persona because we we don't want people to know 
like there was one man that I was his pastor before uh, in a previous place. He enjoyed taking aromatic foot baths. <laughs> now, he was very, I mean, he was tough. He was strong. He was a, a, a godly, faithful man. But he liked taking a good foot bath. It was relaxing mm-hmm. for him. And what was what was great is he didn't mind telling people. Mm-hmm. It, it was refreshing mm-hmm. that he would, you know, if, if someone would say, that they had a struggle with something, whether it was the foot bath or whether it was something else, he would say, well, I'll tell you what, this helps me. Mm. And sometimes he would say things that you would think, oh my, I'm kind of surprised that you, you just, you're not, we're not accustomed to hearing people who talk about that, but, but that's part of, I mean, he was an example of enjoying things openly without fear. And I think that's has to do too with, in a healthy way, not being someone ruled by shame so that you can kind of be yourself openly and honestly. And that's good for many areas, I think, in life. Yes. And that leads then also, to, you know, you have a, your chapter on stories mm. and how stories play a significant role in mm. pursuing happiness. Mm-hmm. So one, one thought that came to me when I was reading that is that we have become much less. Now, now, I'm going to interrupt myself and say, some people would debate this. Some people say, we we do as much storytelling now as we ever have. Mm -hmm. But it seems like that we've become a a people who who don't tell stories Mm -hmm. as much as we once did. Mm -hmm. So, what does it take to to relearn hmm. the art of storytelling? Hmm. Well, you know, I think for me, I became really conscious of storytelling um, when my sister had kids and I would go and I'd take care of them. And you realize just how much of a kid's life revolves around stories because they want you to read a book and then they want to play and then they want you to read another book. And, you know, they just get so wrapped up in and it made me realize how when you're when you're kind of navigating your adult world, you don't think to yourself, wow, my, my adult world is really shaped by all these, these different stories that I absorb as a child, but also the stories I see on the internet, the stories I watch when I, you know, let myself have a break and watch something on Netflix. But stories kind of are all around us. And they're foundational, I think, to just how we um how we describe ourselves when we do. Um, you know, so when I tell you, when I meet you, uh, I could tell you facts about myself, right? Like I could say, I work here, I'm, you know, you know, engaged to so-and-so and I do whatever. But if you, if you do that, you're just telling facts. But when we really get to know someone, they, they give us a sense of the arc of their lives. And I think that to become better storytellers, a part of it is we just need to realize that we are telling a story, you know, that the story we tell is not the same thing as the facts about ourselves, right? So um, I may work here, do this, do that, but that's not the same thing as the story that we weave together about being an outcast or about um, being a failure or about, you know, those, those things aren't objective. They are, they're, they're the way that we inflect our story. And I think the more that you, um, 
inflect your story with various themes, the more you begin to live those themes out. You know, I talked about that with my little niece in that um, there was this moment where my sister showed her picture of, of an aunt she hadn't seen because it's been two years in COVID. And she said, that's Gwenny. She's one of our people. We love her. And, um, and I realized that my sister was setting up, this is the story you're in. This is the character she is in the story. And that disposes Lillian to act in a particular way, you know? And I think that we do the same things with, our, with ourselves in the ways that we tell our stories. So we should be careful about the ways we tell our stories. And we should be actively involved in, um, in trying to fill our mind with good stories, you know, whether that is scripture or um literature. There's so many ways, but being, being conscious that we are telling stories, being conscious of the kind of stories that we're absorbing and then, um, and then thinking carefully about how we tell our stories and, and asking others. I think that's something else that's helpful. Asking others if they see us telling something wrong about our story. You know, I think that one of the, one of like the keys of an unpsychologically healthy person is someone whose story can't be questioned. Do you know what I mean? Someone who, right that, you know, the, 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 the telltale of the narcissist is that their story is the only story. And so being able to say to others, can you, can you tell me if I've got this part of my story, right? But also being open to God, retelling our stories, I think is an important thing as well. Little personalities hmm. reveal themselves hmm. when, when their story is challenged. Mm-hmm. In I'm, I'm, I, I wish we, we could go further down the line of chapter six, mm. which is, I would say, perhaps your most controversial opinion in the entire book. That <laughs> Mr. Collins from Pride and Prejudice gets too much flack, and mm. we should actually be more like Mr. Collins. Mm. So what is it about Mr. Collins that... And, and, and I, I will not follow up except to say that, even though you've not answered yet, but I, I will say I actually developed greater appreciation for him. Uh, so go ahead. T- tell us. What so, should we end So I think I want to preface this with saying that I'm not saying that Mr. Collins does not have his flaws. He absolutely does. But I think that one of the great things about Jane Austen is that you don't just read her books. They also read you, right? And that book is called Pride and Prejudice. And we're not just witnessing Pride and Prejudice in the other characters. We're also experiencing it in ourselves. So Mr. Collins, we all dislike him profoundly for various reasons. Most, the mostly, I think the unserious reasons are just he's awkward and presumptuous and he's just kind of annoying. Um, The more serious reasons might be, you know, he can't take Lizzie's no for an answer. And I think, I really think that could largely be chalked up to not just him being a bad person, but him not being able to read social cues and being in a time when like, it was very normal for him to assume that his cousin would say yes. He wasn't just being rude. Like it was weird for her to say no, not that it was wrong, but like, you know, and the more serious criticism could be, he was harsh on Lydia. My, my thing, though, is I think he's an example of how our prejudice makes us dislike one person really intensely when there are so many other people to dislike more. Principal amongst them, in my opinion, and this is another conversation topic, Mr. Bennett. Mr. Bennett uh, is, he's not a very good patriarch. He doesn't 
he doesn't look out for his children and their inheritance. He has to, you know, we all, again, we're all mean to Mrs. Bennett and think she's all annoying. But poor woman has five daughters and she's trying to make sure they're not destitute. And she has to like, you know, nag her husband into doing the very basic social duties that he needs to do. But we are disposed to like Mr. Bennett more than than Mr. Collins because he's just not annoying. So part of my thing is that we should kind of reflect on why do we sometimes ascribe people being awkward or annoying to like, that's a, a moral failing when actually sometimes people can be very nice and normal, but have big moral failings. And so it's kind of playing on that, but on Mr. Collins actual virtues, I think at the end of the day, he is what I kind of call a master of the happy life in a worldly sense, right? Aquinas uh, likes to divide the virtues into kind of like the, you know, the earthly virtues and heavenly virtues, you know, and says that a good, a good pagan can do the, you know, prudence, justice, fortitude, all those things. And though I know he's a clergyman, I think Mr. Collins does a pretty good job on the pagan virtues. Do you know what I mean? He, he navigates the world in a wise way for the maxim maximizing of his happiness in a way that's virtuous, you know, and it's not just the pagan virtues. I think it's very, he's very proverbial, right? When you think about Proverbs and kind of the advice it gives on how to seek a wife, how to treat your neighbors, how to do a good job. He kind of does those things. And he's a great mixture of, he has a certain amount of ambition. And I think that's good to have, right? It's good. You should want to have a, a good life. You should want, you, you should not have such a low self-esteem that you, that there aren't desires that you're willing to pursue. But he also has kind of a cultivated thankfulness um, for the life that he has been given that he's not eaten up with, you know, when you think about Wickham, he's a good correspondent because their lives are very similar. They both kind of um, were offered careers in the church. They both were always going to be second to people like Mr. Darcy. Mr. Collins kind of takes everything he's given and enjoys it to the max and is okay knowing, you know, my life is going to have limitations, but gosh, they're pretty darn good limitations. Whereas Wickham lets his lack of contentedness destroy his own life and everyone around him. Right. And, um, and then I think the other thing, Mr. Collins is just at the end of the day, you have to admit he does not have bitterness, right? He, he goes for Lizzie and who wouldn't want Lizzie? Lizzie's like the bomb. Right. And, and it's, not, I think we should not condemn people for wanting, wanting the best or wanting, and in the end, she wouldn't have been the best for him, right? They would have had a miserable marriage. Um, but he goes for what he thinks is the best. When he gets to know, he's sore for a little while and then he gets over it and he's nice to her and he lets her hang out with Charlotte. And that I think is an admirable quality. And I think in life, learning to have enough gumption, enough self-worth to go for things and sometimes be disappointed but carry on with that bitterness that, that if you can master that, you can master about a good 40% of life, I think. Well, and I suspect mm -hmm. that one reason a, a lot of people don't like him, which you've already really touched on, but I think a lot of ladies have had the experience with guys who have pursued them at one time mm -hmm. who, they would just, they would say no. And he was perhaps a little bit too persistent mm -hmm. or, 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 or just didn't get it. So because that experience is so relatable mm -hmm. for ladies that has, and, and 
my guess is that, that there's, you know, well, at, at least I know in our church, in our house, there, there's a more emphasis with, with young ladies reading Pride and Prejudice than there mm-hmm. are with, with young yes. men. So <laughs> when a guy reads that, I said I wasn't going to do any follow-up, and I'm still doing it. But but it, it is a really interesting and great for conversation, though. Hmm. So I was glad you included it. Well, and I'll say this really quickly, which probably I shouldn't say, but I do think, you know, there are predatory guys who can't take no for an answer in a, in a concerning and worrying way. Yes, yes, yes. But I also just have to say, you got to be, as a young woman, we got to be kind to the good-hearted young men who are doing their best out there, you know, and I think at the end of the day, that's what Mr. Collins is. And, uh, you know, got to a- be gracious and kind and merciful. Oh, I, well, Joy, that, that's a very good way of saying it. So we, 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 we can we, we can leave it at that. But but for any young single guys who are listening, once she says no, you just gotta you gotta just say trust it. God and move on. Yes, you gotta gotta think about how much more we'd like Mister Collins if we just stopped after the first proposal. You know, right? Yes, he would not be near. I don't think he'd be nearly as disliked. No, I don't uh, think so. If that was not. Uh, if he did not do that. So the last two chapters, and I'm not trying to minimize these, Mm. but you speak of the necessity of belief Mm. in God, which for some seems obvious, Mm. but for others, I mean, well, you talk about doubt Mm. and, and, and how doubt finds its way in but, but so so that's one chapter. And then the last eschatological chapter mm-hmm. is expect the end of the world. So what is the place mm-hmm. of doubt mm-hmm. in the life of a Christian? Mm-hmm. And I, I know we would not say it's the most important thing, certainly. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> neither can we pretend that it doesn't exist, especially when we see, hear, experience things that can feel like the end of the world. Mm. When certainly two years ago, when COVID was at its max and we were hearing about all the people dying and and we were locked in our, Mm. you know, places here and there and, and you didn't see anybody's face except your own immediate family. I mean, that, that has an effect on, Mm -hmm. on you. So what is the role of, of struggling with doubt mm. at times, even as a Christian, as we see things that, that look like, on one hand, they, they're falling apart? Mm. Well, I think this kind of has a relationship to that idea of being willing to be sad or you know, to being open to these more negative experiences. Because I think, the thing is, I don't think we should pursue doubt. Um, but the reality is, is that we will, I think most of us will experience it. And, um, and so thinking about how we live in, in those seasons and with that, um, is an important, uh, part of, of living. And I think it's something that, um, so I'll, I'll say there's kind of a part of this that has to do with the end of the world and part of that has to do with doubt. Um, for me, and I was very much writing that chapter out of my own kind of experience of, um, of questioning and doubt and, what I found was that I, I had the weird experience, which I think some people have, of 
of, of experiencing deep doubt, but really wanting to believe, which I think is a different thing than kind of, kind of wanting to be done with the whole organized religion. Yeah. I really yeah. deeply wanted to believe, but was having difficulty. And I think one of, you know, of course, this is a difficult thing to say when the very thing you're questioning is God, but trust that if your notion of God is big enough, that he is faithful, that he, that he has these plans of salvation for the world, that you're not the one holding your faith together. That actually, if you went for a whole day without praying or thinking about God or reading your Bible, um, God's not going to disappear. Uh, he's still He's still going to be faithful to you. So in a weird way, kind of relaxing on some level and saying, if God really exists, then he will find me. He will reach out to me. He will, he will show me a way forward. I think that's really helpful. But I think the second thing is that... Um, you have to sometimes, I think, live inside of the story before the story makes sense. And and so for me, I think when I lived as if Christianity was true um, and I opened myself to experiencing God's grace, then I did. Um, rather than kind of pulling myself in the suspended area of like, maybe I believe, maybe I don't. I, I kind of just suspended that question and said, I'm going to live today like God is true, like he loves me. And as I lived that truth, even not feeling it, it began to seem real to me again. Um, and then when it comes to the end of the world and seeing all these things, I think something that's quite comforting to me, and I wrote about this in that chapter, is that, um, you know, we feel like our times are unique. And they are, right? You know, as far as we know, no one's had computers and technology. Um, but our unique strange times are not actually that different from any other unique strange times. And the world has always been in peril. It's always felt like it was about to end. There's always been wars and rumors and wars. There's a sense that I find comforting in realizing that pretty much every generation has felt anxious, has, has nearly destroyed itself um, and, and has wondered if it was the last. And I think putting that into um, kind of view helps me feel less anxious in a weird way because helps me go, okay, well, I'm not that different. And um, Lewis has several great essays in this um, on learning in an atomic age, which is a sermon he gave to the entering class at Oxford um, during World War II. And then also, oh, what's the other one? Um, is it learning? No, it's, oh, it's, no, it's learning in wartime is a sermon and the atomic age is the other one. Right. Um, but the sense that, um, it kind of doesn't change anything if we're in the last times in a weird way. Your, your call is still to be faithful, to love the Lord and to have hope. And that um, even if it is the end of the world or isn't the end of the world, death is kind of an end of the world for all of us. So all of us are kind of yes. oriented around this end. And so kind of accepting that, knowing that in a way it's not different from any other time and then trying to find um, kind of eternal values that we can live for is I think it's important to know that that's something we always are called to do and something that we have always needed to do. That's no different now than it was, you know, hundred years ago. When I was reading about doubt, this is actually something that I'd, I'd preached on before. Mm. Everyone, when, when, we, when we think about the struggle that we have mm. with uh, that that temptation. Everyone usually goes to Thomas. Mm. Not as many people go to John the Baptist mm. when he was in prison. Mm. 
and he sent one of his his disciples to say, are you the Christ or is there another? Now, John, I mean, on one hand, he had baptized Jesus. Mm. He, he, he knew the answer, but I've always, again, this is that same passage as Matthew 11. Mm. Jesus gave, he, he gave John's disciple the things that had happened. You, know, mm. you see that the deaf are healed, the lame walk, and the poor have the gospel preached. Mm. unto them and then he turns around and commends john mm. to those who are listening so the message that jesus doesn't despise us even mm. though we face mm-hmm. periods and, and again I, I i always i appreciate your distinction about wanting to embrace the, the label of, of no longer you know n- I forgot how you said it exactly just now, but n- no longer actually a believer, but now just kind of in between. Mm. The, it, it's not that, mm. but it's just, it's that feeling mm. of, do I know? Mm. How do I? But because when, I mean, there's a lot of people who died by suicide mm. in the midst of COVID mm-hmm. due to isolation. I mean, one of my, uh, a friend of mine, uh, a priest over, over much closer to where you live than, than he is to where I live, <laughs> talked <laughs> about uh, a, a young man who was stuck in his dorm mm. for months mm-hmm. and could not go. And he was very close mm. to an absolute breakdown. So it, it, it's really hard, and during those times, you can be tempted. But if you, if you, just persist, and 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 say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm-hmm. If that's all you can pray, that's, you know, we're not cast out mm-hmm. because of our temptations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, then the epilogue in your book which is a fitting climax mm-hmm. to happiness as described in, uh, in Matthew five by Jesus is to give yourself away. Mm-hmm. So how is it possible? And this will be the last question. How is it possible for us to be happy when we are giving ourselves away? Well, I think it's actually impossible to be happy without giving ourselves away. And I think that has something to do with, Um, being made in the image of God. And God is a God who is sufficient and good in himself, but um, continues to pour himself into us and into creation. And um, I think the secret of happiness is, is to know and and love and be with God and God, what God is like is God gives himself away. And there's this endless, there's this endless well of joy in God um, and I think that we're made, sorry about that. Um, sure. We are made for, um, we're made to be able to share ourselves um, with others. And um, that actually true happiness is found in having that deep well of, of knowledge of God's love and being able to give it and pour out of ourselves. I think that's kind of what we're made for, we're made to reflect God's image to others. And that is when we find real love. And I think that, um, I think that 
having that, you know, it's funny, you were talking earlier about power. Um, but I think there is this power, this confidence that comes from having your your hope and your joy in God, because that means there's this inexhaustible resource of, of that sustains you, um, that can stand up and look life in the eye and not only say, I will survive this, but say, I will still have more in me to give and to love others. So I actually think that loving, loving others and, and giving of ourselves is about kind of participating in the divine life. And that is where happiness is found. Hmm. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. I, I thank you, Joy, for taking the time to, to meet today. Again, the book is Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. The author is Joy Clarkson, and it, it's a great book. It will be beneficial to anyone who reads it, man or woman, whatever your age. So thank you, Joy, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Matt. I've enjoyed it as well. The Good Life Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might also enjoy Got a Minute, theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people, featuring Rich Lusk and Larson Hicks. Oh.